still ready. That is small, of course. I'm the king of the world! Hello again, and welcome to another episode of A Thousand and One by One, where we take a film out of the wonderful book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. My name is Adam St. John. And my name is Ian Woodington. And uh, Ian, where where are you today? I'm at home. I Adam, am, where are you? I'm at my home, which are yeah. miles apart. Yeah. God damn this Washington weather. This, uh, as it's been, uh, Snowmageddon or Snowpocalypse or whatever you want to call it has, oh, Jesus. has hit the greater Western Washington area and we will be recording separately today, um, this episode and the next. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. This, yeah. This is not, a, I think it'll be okay. I, I do too. This is not going to be a long-term, uh, idea. We're not, this is not going to be something we do a lot. And at least we're, we're not wasting it on something good. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, is that your, is that your feeling already? Uh, no, it's it's uh, it's complicated. Okay. Uh, well, before we get into today's episode, we will give you some recommendations for this week. Ian, what do you have for us? Uh, I have the newest remake of A Star Is Born. Now, I went into this with absolutely zero expectations. And why was that? Uh, well, how many times are they going to try and? I mean. It's just one of those Hollywood tropes are just going to keep remaking things, you know, keep flogging that dead horse, right? But sure, sure. I So went in very, very low expectations, and I came away really very pleasantly surprised. Almost elated, I think, would be the, the word that I would choose to use. Nice, nice. Um, so I'm sure, I mean, everybody knows the story of the star is born. You know, you've got the one artist who is in the ascendant and another who is in the descendant, and they kind of meet in the middle, fall in love. He helps her. She tries to help him with varying degrees of success. And of course, we've got Bradley Cooper making his directorial debut and uh, Lady Gaga. Is this the first movie she's been in? I think so. Or really with, with any kind of esteem and character, I believe it is. Yeah. Because yeah, she, she way back in the day, wasn't she like in an early episode of The Sopranos? Like she has like some kind of a weird background where she kind of was an actress, but mostly a singer. I'm horrified and ashamed to say I have not done the surprise. Oh, it is, it is on God. my list. I, you know, I was, I'm one of these, I'm one of these people that likes to wait until the show is over. We're the same with Game of Thrones. We haven't done a single minute of Game of Thrones. I know, we but are waiting for it to be over, and then we'll binge it at our sort of leisure. But the Sopranos I said the same thing. has been out forever. Yeah, I, I have no excuse. I haven't done The Shield or 24 either, which... Well, whatever. 24 is actually higher up on my list because Kiefer is my boy. Have you seen Have you seen The Wire? Uh, we've almost finished The Wire. Okay. We've, okay. Got, one, we've got one season left on oh, The Wire. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll, let, I'll let it go. I'll let it go. But any, anyway, Star is Born, I, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. I had a great... I don't think it should walk away with Best Picture, but we're going to address that in our next episode yes. when we do our Academy Award tie-in. Yeah. Uh, but 
I was just through the songs in it are fantastic. And there's a lot they of are. great subtext with Bradley Cooper's character. Um, I'm, I'm glad that it turned out the way that it did. I'm glad that it didn't end up going the route with Clint Eastwood directing. Cause I think it was originally supposed to be Eastwood in about 2014 was going to direct this. And I think he was circling what well, Beyonce and maybe DiCaprio for the leads. Oh, and of course, it, it kind of fell apart. I think Beyonce got pregnant or something like that, and they had to keep pushing the, the, the production date, and so didn't end up happening. And I think this is Eastwood had already put so much prep work into doing a musical that he turned around and did Jersey Boys instead, which we all know how you feel about that one. Yeah, yeah. one word, one word. Woof. Yeah. 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 Uh, but no, I, I absolutely adore The Star is Born. I, I hope it walks away with, you know, something. At least, I, I, you know, I'm sure. I'm sure. Song, it'll walk away so, with shallow. Yeah, it will. Yeah, it's pretty much. It's pretty much got that in the bag. I think, if nothing else, I'll save my my Oscar talk about this for yeah for our next episode. But I I have seen it as well. Um, definitely similar feelings to you. I, I had kind of low expectations, uh, and I enjoyed it. I had my my biggest problem with the movie is I don't. It's not that I don't believe Gaga's kind of meteor meteoric rise in, in the music industry. I don't believe the selloutness of it. Like she so quickly becomes a pop star and, and it's nothing against her acting. Cause I've, I've also, I've heard people, you know, kind of denigrate her performance because, because of how unbelievable that, that rise is. And you have to look past the storytelling because Gaga does a really good job in it. For me, it's, Oh, it, she's amazing. In it. It, it's, it's a hard part of the script. Honestly, is just how quickly, she rises and that and that if that's just my bias well the the thing is is i i i totally see that side of the argument but what i also love about that section of the film and what helped my my sort of feelings about it is just how deep that conversation is that bradley cooper has with her on the balcony of i'm guessing it's like the chateau marmont or one of those very famous la hotels before she goes on and does saturday night live he talks about how this this is your moment People actually want to hear what you have to say, so make sure that what you say is what you really feel. And she just turns around and makes this terrible, sugary, shitty pop song. Yeah, it's it's bad. To see the look, yeah, and to see the look on Bradley Cooper's face to go, look, I poured my heart out to you and told you exactly what you needed to hear at this moment, and you chose to ignore it, or chose rather to be influenced by these other people in the industry. That is more so than spoiler his suicide is the most heartbreaking scene in the movie for me especially when you have the follow-up where she's in the bathtub and they have that fight which feels like one of the most genuine fights that i've seen in film in a while between a couple yeah yeah so anyway that's that's my two cents on a star is born absolutely loved it can't wait to watch it again i actually just went out on a limb and bought it because you know in the day and age that we're in now where stuff is out available on digital so quickly yeah I went, well i can buy it for the same price that it's going to cost us to go out and see it actually a little bit less because obviously we're going out we're going to get something to eat as well so screw it i'll just spend the 20 bucks now i have it yep yeah and i i'd say that's it's 20 bucks well spent well so i'll go ahead and i'll stick with this theme of sort of best picture noms um in terms of what my recommendation this week will be and i'm going to not pick what my favorite film of the bunches because I do want to save that for our talk uh, but I will I, I'm i going to recommend The Favorite the, oh it's so good the, the new it's Yorgos so Lanthimos film um, now 
it is not it is not my favorite of the best picture nominees uh but there's something about it that is so it's so unique and i think yorgos slipping in there getting a best director nom he probably took away bradley cooper's nomination but anyway i i i do think that there's something so unique in the style in which he directed this it almost reminded me a little of uh, kubrick and barry linden there was so much natural light with the candle i mean it just felt so like like they actually had cameras and they filmed them back in the 16th 17th century effort i don't know when it said exactly but it just it felt so real even with all the anachronistic things some of the dancing and the, the mannerisms it it still felt of well, that you, world. You know those decisions were were deliberate. Yes, I do. Yes, yeah, I do. Which is which is awesome. Which I respect so much about Yorgos. But it's almost the deliberate nature of of that that made it feel like it, like I I can I can realize that it's that it's of our time. But it the the dedication to it and the seriousness with which the actors portrayed it made me feel like no, they were doing that back then. It it, it actually convinced me that this was something that could have happened back then anyway the, the the very basic basic plot is it's it's a sort of a loosely possibly real tale is it queen anne is that is it yes so yeah so, that's that's my understanding so, i don't think they ever go out of their way to say that her it, name yes, so much yeah. but basically we have this queen and she has a woman attendant played by rachel vice uh wonderfully played by rachel vice and um it well, is, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's probably both her best performance and Emma Stone's best performance. I, uh, Emma Stone's is arguable, but I think it's definitely it's definitely in their peak. Absolutely. Uh, and so Rachel Weisz is a lady in attendant to the queen, and you find out that they might be more than just friends. Uh, and then Emma Stone comes into play. She is a distant cousin of Rachel Weisz. Emma Stone basically works her way up the ladder and becomes sort of a lady in waiting for the queen as well. And the favorite refers to uh, Rachel Weisz and Emma Stone basically vying for the attention of the queen. And there's some other stuff going on with the war and Nicholas Holt is great in it as well, but it's just a, such a fascinating look at the life of the aristocracy. And again, there's just something, the way that this story was told that I found utterly fascinating. The humor is very dark um, but so it might not be everybody's cup of tea and I could totally see why people wouldn't like this movie, but it hit all the right buttons for me and very much an enjoyable movie. I think at the very least it's going to walk away with costume design because it was a, it was a beautifully designed film. Oh yeah. It look, and I'm, I'm glad you made the comparison to Kubrick cause he's already, uh, I think with the last film, the killing of the sacred deer, people are already starting to realize, Hey, maybe we've got a new sort of heir to that Kubrick throne. I certainly, I think he's got the potential to to go to those same sorts of places that Kubrick did. I still haven't seen that. I've seen The Lobster and uh, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. It's, it's kind of like Wind River. It's something that yeah. I, I want to see. It just, I just haven't, it hasn't found its way up to the top of my list yet, but it's it's very much on my list. Well, of of those three, of Lobster, Sacred Deer, and The Favorite, I think Sacred Deer is still my favorite of the three. Your favorite? And, yeah. Is, and, it, is, uh, it, is it your favorite? It is my favorite. Spelt the correct way with a U, by the way. Hey, hey, there it is. And uh, I don't know what Colin Farrell said about Sacred Deer got me so pumped to see it, and he is absolutely right. He said of when he read the the script for Sacred Deer, he said that this reads like 
a nightmare that one of the characters in The Lobster would have. And I went, Jesus Christ, I have to see this film. Yeah. And he's right. I can I can totally see where he's coming from with that. I, I think you're going to be very pleasantly surprised when you see it. Maybe a little horrified, which I hope. Yeah. That's yeah. the intention of the film. Um, again, being a parent, there's, uh, there's stuff in it that's going to take you aback for, for a moment. Yeah. So I'm, exci- I'm excited to hear your reactions to it. Sure, totally, totally. Uh, so uh, our recommendations this week actually tie in really well to the film that we're talking about not just because the film that we're talking about today uh, was a Best Picture winner and sort of a back-to-back sort of homage to the Oscars, but also uh, we're dropping this episode the day after Valentine's Day, and we decided, well, let's do sort of a big sweeping romantic film too. And tying that with the Oscars, we came up with probably the most iconic romance, at least of the last, what, 30 years. And we are talking about James Cameron's James Cameron's Titanic. 1997, very, very long movie, but I, I can I can even tell you now that that was a movie that when it was in theaters, I saw three times in theaters, and I've never, I've seen one movie, I saw Inception twice in theaters, because I, I was on the other side of the country when I saw it the first time, and I saw it with Melissa, but Titanic is the only other film I've ever seen multiple times in the theaters. Really? Wow, I'm... I've done quite a handful, actually. I know I did, uh, just while we're on this thread, I know I did Departed. I actually did Departed uh, back on back-to-back nights. Um, and then uh, There Will Be Blood is another one. I did There Will Be Blood three times. I did Children of, I did Children of Men twice, I think. So I'm, I've, I'm interested to hear that you've only done a couple. Yeah. Well, I just find it, I mean, I've seen it, I've, I'll, and I usually wait for the, the follow-up watch at home, but, you know. So uh, our main cast, if you haven't seen this movie, we'll just blow through this. We have Kate Winslet as Rose, Leonardo DiCaprio as Jack, Billy Zane as Cal, Kathy Bates as Molly Brown, Francis Fisher as Ruth or Kate's mom, if you didn't didn't know that. Uh, Gloria Stewart plays Old Rose, Bill Paxton as Brock, and the only other person I wrote down, because he might be my unsung hero, is uh, Victor Garber as Thomas Andrews. But oh, he's brilliant. He is fantastic, but you could probably I mean, do you have anybody else that I, I left the, off? The other two names and my unsung hero of this film, like, I guess if we just want to get it out of the way right now, is Bernard Hill as Captain Smith, and then I also really love David Warner as Lovejoy. As the, he's kind of I'm so it's such it's such an it's such an interesting character. I mean, he really is at that age. I mean, David Warner was a little bit past his prime to be playing that, that character that you would consider a heavy. Yeah, but I I love that there's this kind of unspoken subtext about him. Like Rose drops a, a hint somewhere that I think he used to be a cop at some point. And I I love kind of wondering about well, how the hell did he get into this kind of very ritzy high society circle? And I, I just love what David Warner does with that performance. He doesn't have a ton to do. No, but he... But what he... He says a lot, yeah. saying very little. He's... Here's the thing. He will... Yes, he, he is Lovejoy in Titanic, and that is probably what most people know him from. But in my heart, he will forever and always be the professor in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Part 2, The Secret of the Ooze. He is in that, and I love him in that. Oh, my God. No, for me, he's always going to be uh, the 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 evil being in uh in time bandits oh i which yeah i haven't seen so i don't i don't know from that no he's he's wonderful in that he steals absolutely every scene he's in yeah and of course he's also the other very famous role that i would uh kind of loop him back to would be the original straw dogs where he uh he's in that yeah 
No, he's uh, he's the essentially the rapist in it. Oh my god! I no. I, oh, excuse me. No, he's not. He's not the rapist. He's the. Uh, oh, I can't believe I flubbed that. Is in he... Straw Dogs, he's the uh, sort of the mentally slow guy. Okay, okay. When you mentioned it, I was like, he kind of. Oh, okay. That's interesting. I'll have to go no, back no, and no. rewatch that. That's no, no. I, sorry, I flubbed that. No, he's. Uh, that's right. He plays the guy who uh, Dustin Hoffman is protecting. Yes, the whole reason for the oh. siege on the house, and he is. He's wonderful in that. He is. He Even is. though he doesn't, he doesn't have the best kind of role to play. He still plays a very sort of shadowy character. You don't know whether he molested that little girl or not. Yeah, kind of thing, it's that's. It's, it's again. It's another film. Oh where he yeah, has that's in the a book. Lot to do. Yeah, but he he doesn't say much. That'll be right? it. So that'll be a hard. That'll be an interesting episode when we get to it. Yeah. No. Straw. I, I showed Liz Straw Dogs uh, a couple months ago for the first time, and we had a very interesting discussion about it. Oh, afterwards. dude. Yeah, Melissa and I. Same thing. We. Yeah, that was like a. It's, we probably spent tough. an hour after that movie just talking about it. That was definitely a. Let's let's finish this bottle of wine and talk about this movie. Yeah. Uh, no, you have to. Yeah. Uh, so when it comes to accolades, I'm not going to spend too much time on all the out. Like obviously there are many accolades that took home outside of the Oscars. Uh, I don't know if there's any specific that you want to bring up. Well, I you know me being English, I always like to come back to the BAFTAs and how they bring a sort of alternative spin on award season. Well, here's the deal: Titanic, even though what it was nominated for fourteen at the Oscars and won eleven. Yes, but I'll, and I'll go more into that because I have some fun facts about that. Uh, the BAFTAs, it was nominated for. It was nominated for ten. Yep, and lost all ten of them. All of them. Yep. Yeah, which is it's interesting. Of course, my my favorite of its losses was to the Full Monty. Yeah, which won Best Film that year. Which I again, I'm absolutely elated for. Full Monty has a very very special place in my heart, and the fact that it's not in the book is one of those things that drives me nuts because it, it, it really is a film that everyone should see. It's a great movie. It absolutely is a great movie. It's so touching and and heartbreaking. The fact that this dad goes out on such a limb just to be with his son just to have those weekends again with his son if anybody hasn't seen full monty it's about male strippers in the north of england in sheffield very working class blokes who just who do anything just to kind of make ends meet it's it's a really special special film yeah um so i'm gonna kind of dance around some of the stats before i get to the oscars uh, currently it sits at number 83 on the AFI's top 100 films. Uh, it is not on the IMDb 250. Here is an interesting thing. Rotten Tomatoes. Its current score on Rotten Tomatoes is 89, which sounds about right. But, yeah. But the audience score is what I find really interesting. Yeah, it's a pretty big differential. Yeah, it's at 69. Which, with this film in particular, I would imagine that Titanic... I, that that the audience score would be higher because I feel like this is a movie that rises above the critics' opinions. Like this is such a film to be celebrated by the masses that I'm, I just find it, I find it very surprising that it's, it's essentially going from the B minus to a, or a B plus to a D plus on the, on, yeah. if, you, if you were to use that scale, it's just, I find that very interesting. Well, I, it took me a long time to get there with Titanic. Yeah, it took me a, it took me a good I'd say three end to end viewings to go okay I'm starting to get it I mean I I think it, well it came out in '97 so it would have been ten or eleven and uh, I I think that's kind of like the that sort of the male demographic is kind of a, a 
it's not going to fit the mold. Not every sort of male demographic is going to sort of flock to this movie. I said, yeah, it's funny because obviously I was, I was, I'm the same age as you, and I, yeah. I saw it three times in the theater. So, I, well, and I've, I've heard of people seeing it as many as ten times. Yeah, yeah. Which of course plays into it. I mean, if you want to get into the the budget and how much it made, oh, go, feel free. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I was trying desperately to search to see what the original budget was because I know it didn't originally start as two hundred million, but it ballooned up there. And if I remember right, I think Cameron put something like twenty million dollars of his own money into it and of course it's very famous for being the first film to cross the billion dollar mark and now after its couple of re-releases the 25th anniversary or sorry the 20th anniversary one and now the the 3d one that they did as well i think it sits somewhere around 2.1 billion which yeah it's still a big deal but i think that's becoming less and less of a big deal now that we have i think i looked i think there's something like 37 films in the billion dollar club now of course ranging from everything from Pirates of the Caribbean sequels, uh, all these plethora of comic book movies. Yeah. There's, I think there's hardly an original film or the first in a series other than Titanic and Avatar in the Billion Dollar Club. It's, it's, mostly, it's mostly remakes, sequels, and comic book yeah. movies. Yeah, it's rare. It's totally yeah. rare. Um, so I, I just want to go back to the Oscars for a second because I, there are some, there's a couple of things I really enjoy about the this year so yeah so titanic won 11 and became the second of three movies to to hold the record with the most academy award wins the other two being ben-hur and uh, lord of the rings return of the king uh a couple of things about this year so uh, the five films that were up for best picture that year were um titanic which won la confidential which won two it won adapted screenplay and supporting actress goodwill hunting which won supporting actor and original screenplay as Good As It Gets, which won Actor and Actress for uh, Jack Nicholson and Helen Hunt. And then uh, The Full Monty, which won one because this was still in the four years where the Academy was doing dramatic score and uh, comedy or musical score. So yeah. while Titanic, while James Horner's score won for Titanic, uh, the score for Full Monty, and I don't know who, who that was, um, that won as well. So every, every film up for Best Picture did win an award, which does not happen every year. Here's the other thing, though, that I think is really interesting, and I'll be curious to see if you know this. So, what was the one film not nominated for Best Picture to win an Academy Award that year? Because there was only one other movie that won. Oh, it's got to be either Wings of the Dove or Mrs. Brown, right? No, no, those are those were only up for for like acting and some maybe like the Cosmo Awards. This, oh, okay. So, of the technical awards. That Titanic did not win. It did not oh, win. So wait, hang on. Is it Fifth Element? No. Damn it. Although you're close. It did not win Best Makeup. And Best Makeup that year went to Men in Black. Oh, I did read that. That's right. So uh, uh, had had maybe a weaker... Maybe had the Academy not gone the sci-fi route that year with makeup. Because they tend to switch up. They'll go like old age and then they'll go like Suicide Squad. They have a, they have definitely have a weird way of picking best makeup winners. But uh, had that year gone yeah, different... Yeah, the, 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 the fact that Suicide Squad is an Academy Award winning picture, does that not irritate you slightly? Dude, it, I, I will never understand how, how that all works. The Wolfman is an Academy Award winning movie. Oh, that film is good. The makeup in that isn't even that good, man. Dude, you're not, yeah, yeah, anyways. Um, so, yeah, there you go. So, I just wanted to... Uh, those are some fun things about the uh, the Oscars and Titanic that... Uh, yeah, I just wanted to bring up. 
So I am not going to delve too heavily into the plot of this movie. I don't think it's worth our time to do that. I, I, yeah, I think it's fairly obvious. You know, everybody, if you don't, if you haven't seen Titanic, which at this point, any film going person or anybody interested in film, you've seen this movie. You don't need us to sit here and, and then there's, rattle off the, the finer points. Yeah. And there's, there's a possibility that some of our, our younger listeners just because this can't made it come out 10 years after they were born. They just might not have circled back to it. They might know all of the, I'm the king of the world. I'm flying Jack. They might know all of the cliche things from it, but they might not know the movie, but basically here's what it is. Um, you have Bill Paxton, He's kind of a treasure hunter, modern day, this is 97, looking for this big, big, fat diamond called the Heart of the Ocean. Uh, he finds a picture of Rose. Uh, Rose is very, very, very old now, and she sees this news clip, and she basically flies out to talk to, to uh, his name is Brock, uh, Bill Paxton's character, about what it was like to be on the Titanic. Flashback, cut to, she's in a horrible relationship with uh, Billy Zane, and Leo wins his way onto the ship in a game of poker and they meet and they basically fall in love with each other. And it happens to coincide with one of the most, uh, iconic and horrible incidents in, in, in history, which is the sinking of the Titanic. And that is pretty much the movie leaving out the finer details, of course, but that's, yeah. it is a romantic tale of love crossing, you know, uh, wealth lines and, uh, and backgrounds and basically, you know, these two deciding to be with each other even into the final moments of their lives. Well, the the best way to describe it is, I think, the same way that Cameron pitched it to Fox is it's uh, it's the disaster movie version of Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, yeah, it really which, is. Which which makes sense for casting Leo, I guess, because he had just been in Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, yep that that was that was the film right before this for him. I yeah, believe. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was the one he did right before doing it. Uh, you know what we skipped over is uh, we always uh, like to call out National Film Registry. And Adam, is this film in the National Film Registry? Um, you know, I'm not going to lie. I didn't write that one down, but I would be... Um, I'll come, but it was 2017. Come on, get get with the times, man. I, I'm so sorry. I was so I was so involved in the uh, the Oscar race. I also forgot to uh, mention the other films by James Cameron that are in the book, which are uh, The Terminator, Aliens, Terminator 2... And Avatar, and honestly, the only one I would take out would be Avatar, uh, just for personal biases because I think that movie is garbage. But I under yeah. I do understand why it's in the book because of its it, the visual quality of it. Um, but to me, that doesn't overcome the schlock that is that script. Yeah, no, I I don't regret seeing it, but I'll certainly probably never watch it again. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if that's a sentiment that you agree with. Did you see it in three D? Um. You know, yeah, I did. You did. It's one of maybe two films that I've seen in 3D, and I I guess I just felt if I'm gonna see this, I might as well see it. Like I I feel like it was it's one of a few films where that was the intended the the true intended way to see it was in 3D. Um, it's an experience, but I I don't I just that's it's, it's still a gimmick. It's not for it me always exactly. Will be. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um. So I will say Prometheus looked pretty good in 3D. I I, I haven't seen that movie at all, so I, I wouldn't well, know. That's, well, my, my feelings about Prometheus are very uh, unpopular and divisive, so we won't delve into those just yet. It's something we can ad- address in the Alien episode. Okay, that, well, that, that sounds great. 
Um, so I figured I kind of figured that today we would just talk about the things that struck us, good, bad, whatever, because because there's no there's no point in really delving into. I mean, I'm sure what we will get into the finer points, but I don't want to go plot point by plot point. You know what no. I mean? That uh, that doesn't work for me either. But uh, do you have any uh, any quotes that you liked from uh, critics at the time? I do, but I don't want to. I don't want to read this whole thing. It was, I, got, I found Peter Travers from the Rolling Stone, and I want to say that I I picked it because I liked what it said. So this, just bear with me, everybody, Ian, and our and our listeners. Well, I, well, I I like Peter Travers. I've always respected him as a as a critic. Okay, so let me. I like it because I think he he acknowledges what's good and bad about this movie. He says, James Cameron's Titanic, shot with a poet's eye and a tin ear for dialogue, represents the best and worst of 1997. The film drags at three plus hours. It costs somewhere between 200 million and 300 million, which is obscene and more than any movie has ever cost. And it is often shapelessly sappy and telling the fictional love story between Rose, a 17 year old American girl traveling with her hot tempered millionaire fiance, Cal Hockley and 20 year old Jack Dawson, a struggling artist who wins his steerage ticket in a poker game. No matter Titanic is thrilling in ways that no other movie in 1997 dared to be Cameron as a director, writer, producer, and editor, sticks his neck out way out in combining his romantic fiction with real life tragedy and then he talks about you know the actual event of titanic cameron wants to astonish us with sights hitherto the largest floating object ever built hits the hits that iceberg we are confronted with images that will leave jaws dropping in wonder that yes movies can do this cameron built a replica of the titanic 90 percent to scale in Rosetta beach mexico and reproduced the original interiors down to the silverware wallpaper and carpeting in the words it's it's the words Cameron's own that fail him. For example, I'd rather be his whore than your wife, Rose tells Cal, whose oil who oils his way around the ship like a dastardly villain out of a silent movie. You half expect to see his lines printed on title cards. It doesn't help either that Cameron divides the passengers so schematically into the listless rich and the lively poor, who are most often found below deck dancing lustily or bonding with their children. Which, this brings up the, I think the biggest thing about this movie, I, and after rewatching it, probably the fifth or sixth time I've seen this movie, um, the dialogue really does let this movie down more oh, than yeah, anything else. Yeah, it's a atro- it's really atrocious in places. Uh, that's a good example, I think that that um, Travers uses. And then I, to continue that thought of bad dialogue, um, I have Barbara Schulglasser's uh, San Francisco Examiner. Uh, quote, she said, the number of times in this unbelievably badly written script that the two lead characters refer to each other by name was an indication of just how dramatically the script lacked anything more interesting for the actors to say. That, that's just good. Uh, that's just good critique right there. And, and it's funny because, you know, as I was watching the movie, I wrote down lines that kind of stood with me. And I do like, like it's just towards the end, and this is old Rose talking, and she says, a woman's heart is an ocean of secrets. Like that's, that's just, that's, that is a, that is a well-written line. I actually, I definitely enjoy that. I mean, taken out of this big old script, it does, it's a great line, but there it's, it's like a diamond in the rough. It's, it's the heart of the ocean of lines in this. It's rare. Oh, very nice. If I was wearing a hat, I would take it off. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but there are other things too, like when it's the, the sink, the sink is, the ship is sinking. And, uh, Rose is explaining to everybody that, you know, half of the people on this ship won't won't live. And Cal says, not the better half. 
Like, he is such a prick. Well, here's the deal. I, I'm, I really was watching Billy Zane's performance this time. Yeah. And I know that he has some of the worst dialogue in the entire film. Yeah. Like his, his, his stuff is some of the most offensive as far as, you know, quality writing is concerned. But what he has to do, I mean, he really does have to play the shitheel of this film. Yeah. And he does it so well. I think he is, he's not my unsung hero because for me that's, Bernard Hill says so much in just that thousand yard stare that he has. Oh, so, and that's why I but, like, that's why I like Victor Garber. But, yeah. But continue. But, but Billy Zane, I think is very underappreciated in this film. That was going to be my hot take. My hot take yeah. was going to be that Billy Zane is actually great in this movie. Yeah, he's. He, I think he's better than either of the leads, it, if I'm honest. And it is. It is the part that he is having to play. Yeah, I mean that's just that's just a fact. But yeah, I I think he plays that role the way it was supposed to be done. I think at the time. You know, everybody thought it was just such a dastardly, like kind of almost almost mustache twirling villain. The only part of the of his performance that I tend to lean that way, and it's it's maybe the most ridiculous part of the movie, is the chase slash shootout that happens as the ship is sinking. Yeah, I find because you you just wouldn't do that. It's so unnecessary. We don't need yeah. any more. I, I don't know. Well, that's what I said to Liz while we were watching it. I was like, this is just another unnecessary action beat. Like, you could get the film down to three hours on the nose at this point if you lose that. And them going back down. We've already been down there. We've we've faced drowning. We've faced her. The much more dramatic beat is uh, her with the axe having to cut his cuffs. Yeah. And so you don't also need them being shot at. You already have a moment of very, very high, intense danger. Uh, well, and, well, that and, just it's it's really repeating itself as far as action beats at that point. Well, and for me, like something I found more tense, and and actually, as I was watching it, I kind of held my breath a little bit for these, like this minute that it was happening is the after it's right after the axe moment, and they're trying to get through the 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 locked gate, and the guy drops the keys, and yeah. they ha- and like because the I mean. That that got me. I was like, man, that's the that water rose quick, and they. I mean, it it was a good job of visually showing just how high the tension was. Yeah, because I I totally was I was hook line and sinker in that moment. Yeah, well, and the the water in the North Atlantic is is beyond freezing. I yeah. mean, you just feeling there intense when Leo you know steps down after I, she cuts wait, the cuff, and he's hold, like, holy hold, shit, hold, it's hold cold. On, hold on, can I? <laughs> I just I have to play this card. I'm so sorry. I don't think the water could be beyond freezing, or it would be it would be ice. Well, yeah, I I was you know exaggerating. I, I know that you got you got caught up in the hyperbole, but it, it, yes, I just wanted to say that it, it couldn't be beyond freezing. Thank you for being my editor and and making sure that I don't editorialize too much during this. No problem. No Thanks, problem. Man. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so you mentioned the the running time, and there was something again. I don't know why I like this, but I I, I found that um of the scene set in 1912, so the the whole movie that's not the present day, so everything on the Titanic has a total length of two hours and forty minutes, which is the exact time it took for Titanic to sink, which I thought was kind of interesting. 
that's kind of anal retentive. It is, but but it's a detail. I mean, I kind of like that. That was true. And they also the the collision with the iceberg reportedly lasted thirty seven seconds, which is how long the collision in the movie uh, lasts. See that that I'm okay with. Sure. But making sure that you're doing when you're already trying to cut a film that is over three hours, and you're like, oh no, we're gonna do this intentionally because there's no way that's coincidence. Yeah, none whatsoever. That's that's some anal resentive bullshit. And one of the things that makes me continue to lack respect for James Cameron. Yeah. Not as a visual storyteller, but certainly as a writer and definitely as a director, because he has a really, really bad reputation for being very disrespectful to actors, which I think is completely unnecessary. Look at a guy like Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Where I think I had mentioned in a previous episode, somebody like Angelina Jolie said, I never want to be directed by anybody else again. Yeah. And then you have somebody like Kate Winslet saying, it would take massive, massive bags of money for me to ever be in the same room as this guy. And Ed Harris, who flat out refused to work with him again after The Abyss and the terrible bullshit that went on on that set. Yeah, and and I, and it's so great you mentioned those two because, I mean, Ed Harris and Kate Winslet, they're not just... You know, they're not just A-list actors, but they're also they're they're dedicated to their craft. Like they are, oh, yeah. they are. I would, you know, there are actors who are who are they're fine, you know, but they definitely grew up doing film acting, and and that's it. But these two, like Ed Harris and Kate Winslet, I mean, multiple Academy Award nominations. They've both won. They're both. I mean, they're just. Oh wait, Ed Harris hasn't won. Sorry, scratch that. But anyway, they're just they're both very talented, and so it's not like it's not like hearing some posh new, like it's not like Shia LaBeouf saying, Oh, I would never work with this person again. It's like people who have training who are good at what they do being like, no, I can't, I can't work with this director again. Yeah. Well, I think he's my favorite thing that I've heard said about him is he's been called the 300 decibel director, which is just unnecessary. You don't need to scream and yell at people to get good results. I think my, my lack of respect for him started when they put out that gorgeous alien box set the quadrilogy box set yeah and uh i mean there is there's days worth of stuff in amongst those nine or ten discs or whatever it is and looking at the making of aliens and the way that he treated his english crew you know because he wasn't you know he's shooting this on sound stages in england and he's not used to the way that things are done over there and so he's throwing temper tantrums because oh i'm sorry we stopped for 20 minutes at four o'clock to have a tea break yeah and so you're going to go and throw Moody over there like some fucking five-year-old that's dropped all his sweets. That's not how you behave and act as a professional. You know, so I, whereas I, I do respect a lot of the end results, I don't respect the way that he gets them. Yeah. So something, uh, I, something I want to bring up, if you don't mind. So there's two things I want to bring up about this. And so one of the, the kind of the plot points of this movie is that you find out that at the end... Rose has had the heart of the ocean the whole time that it was in, it was in the coat that cow gave her as the ship was sinking and somehow going through the water and everything else. She has it. You know, I'll look past how unlikely that could possibly be, but find out that she has the heart of the ocean at the end of the movie, old Rose throws it into the water. And that's that. So there are two things I want to bring up about this one. There's a moment early on when it's old Rose is coming to the ship and, uh, Brock Lovett or Bill Paxton is talking about kind of what, you know, the ship was sinking. She gets the whole demonstration and Bill Paxton says, you know, so the heart of the ocean should have been on that boat when the ship went down. 
and I don't know if you noticed this, and I hadn't ever before until this viewing, because, you know, taking more notes and being a little more diligent about looking for clues, there is a moment when it says the, the when, when Bill Paxton says the diamond had to have gone down with the ship. And old Rose has this look. She, she kind of looks away like she knows something that they don't. And I've never noticed it before because I think our, the theory is that we don't know what, where the heart of the ocean is. Like when you, when we step into the movie for the first time, not knowing what's going to happen is we, we believe that we, Oh yeah. That must've gone out with the ship. We don't know that she has it. But there's this look that she does that if you're if you're not looking for it, you would miss it. And she gives away something in that moment, which I think is really great. It's a really great choice. Oh, I didn't. I haven't seen that. I'm gonna have to go back and and take a look for that. Yeah, it's it's a great little look she does. She she totally she and it's not so obvious that like the room would have seen it. And like Bill Paxton goes, "Wait a minute, do you have it?" But it's this nice subtle look that that totally hints at at something else, more to the story than we're getting at that early on. Well, shit, if he had caught it, we could have saved three hours. Exactly. Now, <laughs> I have to ask you, have you seen the alternate ending to this movie? Oh, it's so terrible. Because it is one of the worst things ever. Yeah, it's bad. For those of you who haven't, and this isn't like a like a fake thing. This They actually filmed a second ending to Titanic, and it's on- I think the most egregious thing about it is the, the camera on the crane, the pull-up from Bill Paxton. Oh my god, his crazy laugh- his, like, Isn't that the his maniacal laugh for no reason? And I'm I'm not gonna shit on the dead because you know Bill Paxton rest in peace wherever you are. But come on, man. Oh, I I don't chalk it up to him. I I know that was a James Cameron thing. Um, but for those of you who haven't seen it, that basically as Rose is about to drop the heart of the ocean over the edge, uh, Bill Paxton and I don't know what the woman's name is, but the woman who plays Rose's like great granddaughter or whatever, who's who's accompanying her on the ship. They see her standing on the edge about to drop it. And like, there's this like weird standoff where like, no, don't drop it. And she's, she's holding it over the edge. And then, and then she does anyway. And Bill Paxton like reacts in this bizarre way where it's like, it's him dealing with the fact that she had it or dropped it or I don't know. It's, it's one of the worst things I've ever seen. Well, like, I know what they were going for. Like this is all this time that I've spent all this amount of money and years of my life are now gone and it's you know it's gone for for nothing and i think talking about the actual ending of the movie not the not the the bullshit one that they cut was i do i actually really like the way that that it ended like you can see why james cameron is a big picture scope production designer guy because i think the ending of the movie is is really nice where she she drops it in the water she goes and she can finally because I I think I make the assumption as most people do that she she dies in her sleep that night like that's her finally like cool I can I can I've told my story of Titanic I talked about Jack people know he was a real person and I can slip into my my endless sleep now and now I'm good I'm good to go on. Well, well, dropping dropping the diamond is like it's the weight off her back or the weight from around her neck. Now she can relax. She doesn't have to carry this burden anymore. Absolutely. So, so it works on a physical level as well, I think. And I like it too because I, again, I in the story that I'm telling in my head, I imagine like the next day they go and they they the crew they go down to do another dive and then they find it. Like I, I like that. There's a like you know, it gives Bill Paxton a chance to be the hero in the story that we never see. You know, he he does get to find it and whatever. Um, well, those are those are pretty slim odds, though, man. Well, well, but they've got some they've got some intense technology. Well, that that's the story I'm telling in my head. But yeah. but Melissa, but while we're on the present day stuff, sorry. Oh, no, go, go, ahead. Ahead. no go ahead, go ahead. 
No, I was just... I, I have a long diatribe about the present-day stuff, oh, okay. so please continue. Oh, great, so I'll wrap this part up really quickly because I think it's just funny and I want to bring it up. So then we end with that... that Honestly, that very, very... It's cliche, but I do appreciate that last shot of Rose walking up the staircase at the clock and her finding Jack and everybody clapping. I'm not going to lie. It gets me. I do. I enjoy that. No, it does. The sentimental side of me does. It pulls at the heartstrings. But, but Melissa, we're watching this and Melissa goes, huh... So didn't we just hear that um, Rose remarried and had a bunch of kids and had a whole life after this? And I was like, yeah. She's like, so, but she's meeting Jack in heaven. Is that who she's going to, is that who she's with in heaven now is Jack and the Titanic crew and her husband and her family that has already passed away that, you know, forget them. And I was like, well, I guess. If you want to be a cynic about it, (laughs) shit. But no, that's a good point. I mean, I think we, I think we have to imagine that that's like her, like, her heaven is those people. It's it's that it's that life, you know. But you know, she was married for years and had kids. I don't know. It was just a funny thing to bring up. No, no, no. I I, I like it. No, it's it's a it's a good little nitpick. Present present day stuff. I want to hear it. Present present day stuff. Uh, I think as as bad as some of the dialogue gets in this film, I think the present day stuff is what really lets it down. And I really, I really hate the cuts back and forth to it. I know there's not a ton of them. But I know that they use, there's one that I feel like, and now I, I only saw this thing on VHS once, so I don't remember where the intermission was. Now, oh, if you're I, one could, of those I kids can tell that, you, I know where it is. Okay, if, if you're one of those kids that remembers VHS, you'll remember that this was across two VHS, and I think it was across two DVDs as well. The first time, I think. The first time. Yeah. Right, and then on Blu-ray, I think it's across just one. Obviously, on digital, you'll watch it all in one place, so you don't have the. Inter- where did where did the intermission come? So the intermission comes where um, they've already hit the iceberg, and it's like it's all the top people. It's the it's it's Andrews, it's the captain, and the the uh, who is the. Oh, like Mr. Ismay. Yes, yes, The guy exactly. that, that's pushing them to, yeah. to get into New York a day early. Exactly, and and so the intermission comes where the captain says, "It looks like you're going to get your headlines, Mr. Ismay." And then it cuts to um, Jack's already been arrested, so it's 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 Cal and Rose in the room where he he basically slaps her. Um, so that's that's where the cut was. That's where intermission was. And see, I feel like they had already tried to create a natural intermission where they cut back. I think for the final time before the end of Rose's story, which I really hate. That I think it's after they've. It's after they've they've had sex in the car down below on deck, and then it cuts to all their faces. It's like a it's that big shot of all of them. It's a moment of just comedic completely, relief. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's they're totally enraptured. But I really hate that. I I hate that moment more. I think than almost any other in the film, because for me, I really feel like the uh, the present day stuff should just be bookends. I think we should have the whole Titanic thing all in one go. And then just have the present day stuff on either side. Yeah, I think I'm okay with that too because we do get a little bit of uh, the Rose, old Rose narration, which which works. It reminds us that she is telling the story. I but, don't think you need to physically cut back, and it's so un it's unnecessary. And actually, um, the I don't know what the guy's name is, but the big guy at the beginning who oh, is sort of, beardy, yeah, he, I just <laughs> called it I, in my notes. He's just beard, beardy bad teeth. <laughs> Could they have picked a guy with worse fucking teeth? Oh my god, this guy and he went, and he's got that. See, and this is where the one can I'm we, talking hold about. On, hold on, hold on. Can we just day. can we just for the sake of it because I like it? Can we add a Mick in there? Can he be Beardy McBad Teeth? <laughs> 
<laughs> oh Jesus! I just like that. <laughs> I want to make it more like a real. Okay, all right. Anyways, c- continue. Yeah, it just he I think is the the most egregious sort of offense in the uh, in the in the present day stuff. He's got that terrible line about how she's a very old goddamn liar, and she's probably got you know like that Russian chick Anastasia trying oh, no, to say he, he says anesthesia yeah yeah exactly like he's trying to say amnesia and can't think of the word i'm like do we really need this is this when you were writing this dialogue did it really make you chuckle out loud and go yeah people are gonna find this funny this is where i think the reason that terminator 2 is such a good movie is that cameron wasn't writing it alone he had William Wisher to kind of like counterbalance and add some more human sort of, because I, I did very recently listen to the director-writer commentary on Terminator 2 just to have something on in the background while I was typing up notes for this, actually. And uh, it, it sounds like Wisher did a lot of the dialogue, and which is why probably a lot of the dialogue in Terminator 2, even though you have this huge sweeping time travel sci-fi flick, it does feel very real. It feel it feels more real than some of the stuff that happens in Titanic, honestly. Yeah, that's fair. So I I do think he really does need to sort of I I think I made this same argument with Gilliam as I think he's a better visualist or would make a better cinematographer than he would a director. Sure, but uh, maybe but just food for thought there. Oh no! Oh I I yeah I agree I agree. But you were talking about Beardy McBatteeth and um oh Beardy McBatteeth. And he gives that he gives that whole that whole visual computer demonstration to old Rose about how the ship sank. We get that exact same Mr. Andrews later on when he rolls out the 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 blueprint of the building. He talks about like water comes over for four compartments, but not five. And we basically get the exact same thing. And I. Well, and it kind of ruins what happens in the disaster. I hate to use that word ruins when we're talking about a disaster, but they show you exactly what's going to happen in about two and a half hours time. Yeah, that's part of it, too. It's I mean, and granted, it's it's a history and we get we know what happened, but those are the finer details that we could have lived well, through for those or, for those who don't. Yeah, it's just yeah, I'm I making agree. that case for. I mean, I, I do like obviously we need the treasure hunt aspect of this of of the crew going down there to help kind of get us back to Titanic. But yeah, there's a lot of it that seems unnecessary. And I, I do really like that underwater stuff, by the way, because I know that that is cross cut with some real footage of the Titanic. And that's, that's very cool to have that in there. I do really appreciate that. I was, I was when I was watching this, I'm talking to Liz as we're kind of having a debate as we, we watch and I'm taking notes. I said, this, this is the stuff that I think has aged the best, even though it's not current technology that they're using. It still rings very true. I love, I love seeing the piano. There's a moment that has always been my favorite through every viewing of this film is when they pass over the piano, you get a very light on the background, the sound of somebody playing piano keys. That is, that is great. It is one of my absolute favorite moments in the movie, and it's a total throwaway. Yeah, yeah. So that's so you brought up the that um, piano moment. I'm I'm curious, what is your your favorite moment of this movie? It's the band. I'm sorry. This the, and this is where I'm going to let in a bit more of my sentimental side. I I've seen this film. About the same number of times as you have. You said five or six? Yeah, that sounds about right. That's That sounds about right. Now, I've 
I've seen the first hour of it more than that because it's Liz's favorite film and it's something that she'll put on to kind of have in the background or something to help her go to sleep because she likes to have some kind of noise, some kind of white noise. Um, so I've seen the first hour quite a bit, but over the end-to-end viewings, it's the band and it's the fact that they play Nearer My God to Thee, which growing up in a, in a sort of church environment, I'm familiar with a handful of hymns and I know that that was... Uh, my grandparents favorite him so there's a little bit of of that in there so it's when it's i i choke i really i can't help myself i do then this is where we get into the, the the talk of like well what what defines a sort of man's weepy film if you will but it, it's that moment when the band are playing and it's the montage i know how cheesy it's, the montage no, is. no no i'm because i'm gonna tell you right now i'm on board with you that that's my favorite that moment it's my favorite part of the mo- i mean we've spent hours getting to this moment and we're no longer having to watch all of the 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 rich people basically like putter around making sure they get their like their furs on what i like about the montage is everybody's the same yeah and and right. you know for me it's definitely you know cuz the music is so beautiful anyway and it's not just that the band's playing the band you know they they stopped and the one guy starts it and everybody comes back. So there's this moment of camaraderie between the guys on the band who you know you know they're going to die. And they come back to play. They come back to do something that they're very passionate about. And for me, of all the things that we see during that that montage, which leads ultimately to Captain... Uh, what uh, Captain... What is it? I think Smith was Cap- his last name. Yeah, Captain Smith. Um, that It leads right to the water bursting through the glass. But for me... From the moment the band starts again to that moment, it's it's the mom reading to the two kids down below, and you know they're down in that bed, and you know that the mom has basically just come to the conclusion that there's no way we're gonna get on those boats. So I'd rather spend time with my kids now and, and put them at ease. It, uh, even talking about it now, man, it's it's. I know. And, I, and I, when I, and when they're finished, and he says, "Gentlemen, it's been a privilege to play with you." Yeah, that is that kills me. It's, no, it's, I'm starting to well up right now thinking about it. That no, it's absolutely good. slays me. It's good, and it's it's again we're talking about minimal dialogue because she's like for like the, the part that got me with the mom and the kids like she's just reading from a story. He's got that one line, you know. It's been a, it's been a privilege to play with you this evening, and we're not bogged down with dialogue, and we're letting Cameron do what he does best, which is use that camera and visually be a storyteller, not not a written storyteller. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, I'm I'm glad that we're on board with that. Oh yeah, literally, yeah. Just pardon, pardon the pun, if you will. So yeah, so basically, I agree. I think the montage with the band is probably the best part of the movie. And I think we're agreed on the present day stuff not being not being so hip. Yeah, and we've already mentioned our our unsung hero. I think we I think we got a lot of stuff out of the way. Is there anything? I mean, it's a big movie. It's an expansive movie. Is there, if there was one thing that we haven't mentioned yet that you wanted our our listeners to walk away with, what would it be? Well, i i hit a lot of the uh, I hit a lot of the points I wanted to hit, especially with Billy Zane. I mean, you and I'm thinking that you feel very similar about Billy Zane, as far as him being his performance being underrated, or people just looking at it at the as from the character rather than the performance. Well, and, and yeah, I think you said it right too. It's, he, he's given some of the most poorly written lines to say, and I think he does the best with what he is. And he is, he's a rich, you, I mean, we hear that he grew up rich, that he hasn't had to do much. He's going to inherit wealth and he, that's who he is. 
one thing I do love about this movie is knowing about all the little factual things that they tried to include uh, as far as uh, the guy that's up on the end of the ship with them as the ship is is finally going down that uh, that chef was a real guy he was actually an alcoholic that's one of the things that actually helped keep him alive because he was soused during the whole thing uh, he's he's one of the few people that survived I don't think they they call that out really in the movie but he's based on a true guy as well as uh, the guy that shoots himself and um, obviously you have Molly Brown in there and Aster and Ismay and you know it's it's what really makes this film work and I think what really helps people connect with it is yes you have these star-crossed lovers to root for but they are weaving in and out of a real situation and that's that's the thing that makes Rome work for me somewhat one of my absolute favorite series of all time is HBO's Rome you get to see these huge events like the assassination of, of Julius Caesar from the perspective of of Titus Pullo and Lucius Verinus so I think we're I think we're going in the book is is kind of my general consensus but a kind of uh there's a bit of trepidation I think I think that well I I would say that's more from your end because I I think I can with two feet firmly planted say yeah this should, this needs to be in the book like if if you haven't seen it already is the thing is that so many people have already they're already going to have seen this. If you're going through the thousand and one and already checking off what you have seen, if you're making your your way through it, this is one that I'm I'm fairly certain that ninety percent of people would already check off as yep, I've seen that one. I can move on to the next. Yeah, but I do think it's it it's going to be it is going to be timeless. It's going to be a movie that that you can put on ten years from now. You know, I'll you know a movie that I'll put on for Stella to watch and Sophia to watch when they get to their. You know, I saw it when I was eleven and twelve, and I would definitely let them watch it then and watch it with them, and you know, say, hey, this this actually happened. Not all the people are real, but this the essential facts of this this ship going down. This really happened, you know. And yeah, I think it's a I think it's a worthwhile movie to watch. You know, I think the script is lacking, but I think it's visually very very pleasing. Now there were I do have two final cases or two final thoughts. Okay. Uh, I think this movie is proof that as a studio system you can buy a rating. Because <laughs> I I think with with a smaller budget with less at stake because I mean this is a thing it shouldn't have paid off all the all the hype about it and all the the cynicism about it before it came out I mean this film should have, and again, pardon the pun, it should have sank without a trace, the amount of money they put into it. Uh, It was a very, very big gamble, but I I can think of so, of of the time, so few other films that had frontal nudity in them and as much swearing in them that wouldn't have gotten an R rating. And so I did try to do some research and and came up with nothing, so maybe this is just proving that I am the cynic that I know myself to be. But I, I do feel like... Fox probably, Fox and Paramount probably bought the rating from the MPAA to make sure that they got the PG-13 instead of an R because, well, one, you're already losing a screening a day at that length, and and two, if you make it R-rated, then, you know, you've lost a massive chunk of your audience and therefore a massive chunk of your revenue. Well, I I will say two things. I do know that um, in terms of the nudity, um, because of how it was done, there are other, and I... You're, I can't on the spot. I won't be able to name them, but there are other PG-13 movies that have um, 
that have nudity like that, as long as it's not sexualized, which right. in that, that moment it, it wasn't. And the other thing is that uh, PG-13 movies are given one you could get you get one f bomb you can say any other swear word as many times as you want but if you're going to be pg-13 you get one f bomb before you go any more than one you get an r rating which and, uh, which is i'll i'll say it right it's fucking stupid though well, I won't, it's dumb it's i won't dumb. get on i won't get on on my soapbox about how flawed the mpaa is here the uh the second case that i wanted to i wanted to make the case for the abyss going into okay. the book instead okay. of titanic Abyss is it? Wait. Oh, it's not. Oh, please. I so I haven't seen this movie. So go ahead. Oh, you haven't seen the Abyss. Okay, so no, I I, I, I own I, it. I own it, and it's one of Melissa's favorites. But I haven't seen it. Okay, so I know how you feel about multiple cuts of films, but this is really where I have to make this case to where certain things can hurt or hinder the film. Now he had to get the runtime down to something like two hours and fifteen. Like the studio weren't backing down on that at all, and I think. Their original cut ran 240 or 245. And Cameron, in the way that he throws his temper tantrums, as I've talked about on the sets of Aliens or on this set, um, instead of trimming scenes, he took them out kind of wholesale, which really changes the tone of the film completely. Now, the first time I saw Abyss, I, I bought it as a blind buy, and I actually watched both cuts on back-to-back nights, and they are two very, very different films. The The longer cut deals a lot more with um, Soviet and U.S. sort of tensions at the time, because I mean, it came out right at the end of the Cold War, and the whole thing is, is about guys looking for this sub uh, that's gone down in the kind of race against time to get to it against the backdrop of these this natural disaster that's going to happen and the reasons why the natural disaster either does or doesn't happen is very different in uh the theatrical cut in fact i think the tsunamis or the mega tsunamis as they call them i think they're removed entirely from the theatrical cut so there's a whole missing sense of danger and a sense of purpose and the race against the clock is not quite the same as it is in the longer cut and especially scenes like the relationship between Ed Harris and Mary Elizabeth uh, Master Antonio. I mean, there, there's still tension between them as a couple, but there are little added things like uh, Ed Harris has a blue hand for most of the movie. And in the theatrical cut, it makes no goddamn sense. But in the, the longer cut, you see why his hand is blue. It's because when his ex or the wife that he's separated from comes back onto their rig. And again, I don't want to spoil too much of the plot for you because I would really love to get your fresh take on this film. He actually throws he throws his wedding ring into one of the chemical toilets and then goes to walk off and then regrets that decision immediately and so reaches back in to get it. Hence, now his hand is blue for the whole movie. So, I mean, I, I do think The Abyss is one of... I think it is his most underrated picture and I think that has happened simply because it hasn't gotten a huge release in this digital age. I think that that DVD, that now long out of print DVD is the only thing that they That's what I have. Yeah. I have that, yeah. I know they've talked about doing a high def release. He says that um, both that and True Lies have both been mastered in 4K. It's just finding the time to approve them and put them out on on Blu-ray and digital. So hopefully we'll see those very, very soon in, in in a digital format. So I'm I'm very excited to to hear what you think of the abyss and see if you agree with me that though maybe Titanic shouldn't come out in its place maybe I think Avatar 
when we're talking oh. about James Cameron movies. I, I know you. Seen the, I haven't seen the Abyss, and I already think it should replace Avatar. There you go. So that's um, our. That's a that's a very <laughs> d- divisive sort of opinion. That's uh, those are our hot takes. But uh, but as always, we want to hear your hot takes. Uh, so find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Um, let us know what you think about Titanic and James Cameron in general. Uh, if you're listening, you're probably listening on iTunes and on Spotify and on Google Play. Like us, subscribe, comment, rate, review, all those good things. We want to hear what you think about us and uh, our commentary on these films. Uh, we're looking forward to doing an- one more episode today and uh, and uh, we'll, we'll, with this Skype thing that we're doing uh so hopefully uh, it doesn't sound terrible i'm sure it'll sound fine um hey until next time i'm adam and i'm Ian, and we will see you next week